Well, let me welcome you to this uh, special series of lectures this week called the Gould Holiness Lecture Series. And thank you, Gospel Band, for working with the Holy Spirit to cultivate a beautiful uh, worship atmosphere. Thank you. We glorified God today in our worship, and we lifted up Christ as the one who liberates us from the bondage of sin and death. The Gould Lectures on Holiness offer the Eastern Nazarene College community the opportunity to hear outstanding Wesleyan scholars discuss aspects of the Christian doctrine of holiness. Dr. J. Glenn Gould began the lectures in 1945 in memory of his parents, the Reverend and Mrs. John Gould. The inaugural lecture was published in a book entitled The Whole Council of God. The Reverend John Gould served Eastern Nazarene College from 1925 to 1928 as chairman of the board of trustees and as business manager before being elected as district superintendent of the New England District of the Church of the Nazarene in 1929. Mrs. Gould served as dean of women for the college during the same time period. Excuse me. Dr. J. Glenn Gould was ordained in 1917 as a minister in the Church of the Nazarene and served churches in Haverhill and Cliftondale, Massachusetts, Portland, Maine, Baltimore, Maryland, and Cleveland, Ohio. And from 1940 to 1945, he served as editor-in-chief of the Church School's Publication Office for the Church of the Nazarene. In 1945, he accepted the pastorate of the Wollaston Church of the Nazarene and the chairmanship of the Department of Theology at Eastern Nazarene College, a position he held until his retirement in 1968, serving as a professor in the Department of Religion. Until his death in 1974... Dr. J. Glenn Gould remained the sponsor of the lecture series, uh, which has brought to the campus of Eastern Nazarene College the most prominent lecturers and preachers in the doctrine of holiness. Following Dr. Gould's passing, his daughter and son-in-law, Winifred and the late Harold Jones, con- continued to sponsor the series in loving memory of grandparents, the Reverend and Mrs. John Gould, and parents, Dr. and Mrs. J. Glenn Gould. In addition... The college has been the beneficiary of support from the Gould family for establishing the Gould Library, originally located in Angel Hall, but now relocated to a beautiful space on the second floor of the Nice Library. Eastern Nazarene College is honored to present Dr. Andy Johnson as the guest lecturer for this year's Gould Lectures on Holiness. Dr. Johnson will also speak at the academic symposium on Thursday and offer a colloquium in the afternoon at 3.30 tomorrow in Monroe Parlor to engage conversation regarding the issues that he will address. Dr. Johnson comes to us at ENC at a critical juncture in the spiritual journey of our community. Recently, conversations about matters of justice have been a central topic for our community. It is helpful to have Dr. Johnson with us. Together, we will explore the biblical notion of justice as it relates to holiness and the mission of God. Andy Johnson grew up in southern Mississippi and graduated from Trevecca Nazarene University in 1982 with a Bachelor of Science in Accounting and Business Administration. He then received an MDiv from Nazarene Seminary in 1989 and a PhD from Luther Seminary in St. Paul, Minnesota in 1994, focusing in New Testament studies with a specialty in the Pauline Epistles. 
He taught in the religion department at ENC from 1994 to 1998 before moving back to Trevecca, where he taught in the religion department there from 1998 to 2002. And he has taught at Nazarene Theological Seminary since the fall of 2002, where he is professor of New Testament. And he is the author of uh, numerous scholarly and popular articles, a co-editor of Holiness and Ecclesiology in the New Testament, an associate editor of the Wesleyan Study Bible, and part of the translation team of the Common English Bible. His commentary on First and Second Thessalonians in the Between Two Horizons series will be published by Erdman's in August of this year. And he has also just completed another book uh, upon which these lectures are based, tentatively entitled Holiness and the Missio Dei. It will be published by Cascade Publishers this fall. He has been married to his wife, Gina, since 1984, and has two sons, Zachary, 18, and Benjamin, who is 15. They live in Overland Park, Kansas, where they are active in the Overland Park Church of the Nazarene. Andy is an ordained minister, uh, elder in the Church of the Nazarene. Would you join with me in welcoming Dr. Andy Johnson? Well, thank you, Phil. Um, it is really a pleasure to be back here on the campus of uh, Eastern Nazarene College. Um, just, the, the, just even speaking about uh, being here in 1994 to 1998 brings back a, a ton of memories. Um, I, I just remember as my first teaching job, having my very first teaching, uh, my very first class right over here in Angel Hall, 7.30 in the morning, um, yeah, remember those very early classes. Uh, remember all kind of teaching. It seemed like a thousand people in the Schrader Lecture Hall in Emmys as I uh, helped uh, a, a number of faculty with that class. I I just I have all these memories of people in this place. People like Brad Thorne that I played hours and hours of tennis with over here uh, on the courts. Uh, had a had a great time when I was here. Wonderful things happened to me when I was here, like the, very, the birth of my son, uh, where my wife came to the only class she's ever come uh, to of mine, uh, and her water broke. Um, and so my, my son was born as, my, as, my, uh, as my, my TA in those days, Paul Bowen. I think some of you might know Paul. Tried to get my attention, but I would have none of it while I was talking to another student to tell me that her water had broken and... Uh, my 18-year-old son was born. Um, wonderful, wonderful uh, memories. Some not so good. Uh, being over, um, being over in my office about 2 a.m. one morning, working on a sermon for the next day. Coming out, going to my house over here, right that backed up to right field, on Sewell Street. And as I was walking, I began to be chased by two big guys, uh, who turned out to be ENC security. Um, <laughs> And uh, it was uh, an interesting time, one of whom was my, uh, I, f I fell and hurt myself pretty badly. Uh, one of them turned out to be my advisee who, for some reason, sub subsequently transferred the next year. Um, but uh, thank you so much, again, for, uh, for this invitation to deliver the Google Lectures. It is, an, it is quite an honor. Um, right before I begin the lectures, uh, I'd like to, for us to start off with a reading. A paraphrased creative reading from Genesis 18, 16 to 33, modified from the message, the CEB, the NIV, 
and the AJV, which is the Andy Johnson version. <laughs> when the men got up to leave, they set off for Sodom. Abraham walked with them to say goodbye. Then the Lord said, Should I hide from Abraham what I'm about to do? He's going to become a great and powerful nation, and all nations on earth will be blessed through him. The reason for that is I've chosen him so that he'll direct his children and his future family to keep the way of the Lord by doing righteousness and justice in society so that the Lord will bring about for Abraham what he's promised him. The Lord continued. The cries of the victims in Sodom and Gomorrah are deafening. The sin of those cities is immense. I'm going down to see for myself to see if what they're doing is as bad as the cries of injustice I'm hearing. Then I'll know. The men set out for Sodom, but Abraham stood in God's path, blocking his way. Abraham confronted him. Are you serious? Are you planning on getting rid of the good people right along with the bad? Maybe we can strike a deal. What if there are 50 decent people left in the city? Will you lump the good with the bad and get rid of the lot? Wouldn't you spare the city for the sake of those 50 innocents? I can't believe you'd do that. Kill off the good and the bad alike as if there were no difference between them. You're the judge of all the earth, right? Don't you, ju don't you judge with justice by giving people exactly what they deserve? The Lord said, If I find 50 decent people in the city of Sodom, I'll spare the place just for them. Abraham came back. Do I, a mere mortal made from a handful of dirt, dare open my mouth again to my master? What if 50 falls short by five? Would you destroy the, cities, the city because of those missing five? He said, I won't destroy it if there are 45. Abraham spoke up again. What if you only find 40? I won't do it for 40. He said, Master, don't be irritated with me. But what if only 30 are found? I won't do it if I find 30. Abraham pushed on. I know I'm trying your patience, Master, but how about for 20? I won't do it if there are 20. Pushing hard for the best deal he could get, but starting to lose his nerve, Abraham said, Don't get angry, Master. I, I promise this is the last time. What if you only came up with 10? Is that the best you can do, Abraham? Okay, for the sake of 10, I won't destroy the city. When God finished talking with Abraham, he left, and Abraham went home. Thank you very much. Uh, these lectures are entitled, With Shalom and Justice for All, Holiness, Justice, and the Mission of God, Part 1. God's Mission, God's Creation, and God's Saving Justice. These lectures will make the case that holiness and justice are inseparable in the Bible. Abundant, flourishing, and well-ordered life for all, what the Bible sometimes calls shalom, is the destiny that God intends for creation when it's completely filled with his holiness. God's mission is to bring creation to that end, and his dream is to do it through the agency of human beings like you and me. Doing God's justice in concrete situations in human communities is attempting to enact the conditions of shalom, where flourishing, well-ordered life is available to all in those communities. Since God 
displays his holy character or his holiness through his own saving justice when we participate in God's mission by doing God's justice, we also participate in God's own holiness. Participating in God's mission is the primary way God makes us holy. Now, we want to start with framing the biblical story. To get started, we first need to frame the biblical story rightly. Some people read the Bible as though all the important stuff runs from Genesis 3, where humans fall into sin, to Revelation 20, which is John's vision of the last judgment, where humans are judged. They tend to reduce the biblical story to God's attempt to deal with individual's guilt so that when you die and you face your own individual last judgment, you can go to heaven. But this ignores the way the Bible actually begins and ends. It begins with God taking great care to create the physical world as his cosmic sanctuary or temple to become what we might call the theater of his glory. He calls this world good over and over in Genesis 1. The Bible then ends with Revelation 21 and 22, with God making all things new. It ends with God's good creation made new, with creation reaching its intended destiny and flourishing with abundant life in a garden city that glitters with God's glory. Although creation is called very good in Genesis 1, God doesn't make it perfect in the sense of some sort of static perfection. Rather, God gives humanity a fruitful garden to keep, a perfectly balanced and resourced starting point, a setting in which human beings, working with and enabled by God, could cause the created order to flourish. In the first two chapters of Genesis, then, God gives humanity a job to do, a role to play, a mission from which he never releases us. So from the outset, humans are created to participate in God's mission. This mission is closely related to what it means that God created human beings in God's own image. When Genesis 1 and 2 are read against their ancient Near Eastern background, Both essentially portray humanity as the authorized cult statue in the cosmic temple. The decisive locus of divine presence on earth. The very living image of God in the cosmic sanctuary. In Genesis 2-7, the holy God graciously breathes his spirit or life or breath into humanity his own previously inert cult statue, thereby enabling us to represent his gracious presence like priests and to, in in his cosmic temple, and to rule over it like kings in a way that creation would flourish with well-ordered life and reach its intended destiny. 
the best place in the Bible to see a portrait of that intended destiny, creation reaching its intended destiny and flourishing with abundant life, is Revelation 21 and 22. There, God's garden creation with only two original inhabitants becomes a bustling city with fruitful life and diverse cultural activity with people living in complete harmony with God and with each other. Not only is there no sin, suffering, or death, there's no capacity for these chaotic forces to ever reemerge. All this is because the entirety of the renewed creation will be soaked with God's unmediated, holy, life-giving presence or glory, making all of it God's now completed temple or sanctuary. In it, redeemed humans fully represent God's gracious, life-giving presence or holiness like priests do and even share in his rule over God's renewed cosmic temple like kings. This is not a restoration of creation to its original state. In other words, we're not going back to the garden. But it is the unrealized promise of this first creation that we all live in finally achieved. You shouldn't imagine the shalom of this new creation as some sort of unchanging static perfection, but as continuing and unhindered, robust cultural flourishing. For example, with architects designing more and more magnificent buildings, with the best ever Brazilian soccer teams getting better and better as they showcase the beauty of the game they love, with the most talented Irish step dancers in history, not only performing river dance to, de to delight those who've been disabled and orphaned children in Calcutta, but teaching them how to join the dance. These sorts of things glitter with the very glory of their creator. Now, this is clearly imaginative and speculative, but it's one way to imagine the sort of life-giving shalom God intends for all creation. To sum up then, when all creation is fruitful and multiplying with abundant life and cultural development, when the holy God is dwelling directly with God's holy people in a holy place, creation will have reached its intended, albeit non-static, destiny of shalom for all. The Bible's own framing then encourages us to see it as the story of God's mission to bring his creation to its intended destiny through the agency of humanity. Along the way, of course, after Genesis 3, God will indeed deal with the sin and guilt of human beings along with their devastating consequences for the rest of creation. But this rescue operation is a subplot of the main plot of God's mission to bring his creation to its intended destiny. Even so, it's a necessary subplot uh, that occupies actually most of the Bible. So we'll pay some attention as to how this subplot gets going, the way it develops in Genesis 3 to 11, and what holiness and justice has to do with all of this. Holiness, justice, and the story's subplot. So that humanity could remain free to accomplish its task, God ordered creation with a boundary between every other tree and the tree of the knowledge of good and evil. Adam and Eve were forbidden from eating the fruit of this tree, but 
you all know the story. Even though they've been created in God's image, they crossed that boundary, refusing to fulfill the charge God had given them, succumbing to the temptation to be like God. Before Genesis 3, although creation wasn't yet perfected so that God's presence saturated its every nook and cranny, God had been immediately present to his good creation. All creation had experienced God's direct holy presence as blessing, that is, as generating the capacity for fruitful life and the means of sustaining it. In fact, the very first time in Scripture that we hear the word holy or sanctify is in Genesis chapter 2, verse 3, where God blessed the seventh day and made it holy, because on it God rested from all the work of creation. Since God's blessing in chapter 1 was for the express purpose of enabling well-ordered life to flourish and multiply, his blessing the seventh day and making it holy has a similar purpose. That is, it is to provide his creatures and creation with the sustaining rest needed for the ultimate purpose of producing flourishing and well-ordered life. The first time, then, we hear of God sanctifying or making something holy, setting it apart from other things, or days in this case, for his own use, the purpose of the action is so that well-ordered life can flourish. In other words, holiness is explicitly connected with blessing and life, the very things God's direct, unmediated presence routinely generated for creation prior to Genesis 3. The first pair's disobedience, however, was disastrous. By refusing to live under God's rule, respecting God's ordering of the creation, they became alienated from God, from each other, and even from the creation itself. Their refusal to reflect God's gracious rule or image to the rest of creation in an attempt to become like God on their own terms was an exploitation of the status that God had given them and a move toward self-idolatry. This resulted in the very ground being cursed and made all of creation susceptible to the chaotic forces of sin, injustice, and violence, with human beings becoming inclined toward or better enslaved to these death-dealing forces. As it, as it turned out, rampant injustice and violence did indeed engulf humanity, leading God to essentially restart creation with Noah and his family. And in spite of the fact that even then the human heart remained inclined toward death-dealing forces, Noah's family does begin to fulfill the creation mandate of being fruitful and multiplying. Spreading out over the whole earth with a rich variety of languages and cultures. You can see those in chapter 10 of Genesis. But these, then things regress at the Tower of Babel in Genesis 11, where humanity goes back to its old tricks in the garden. 
rather than fulfilling the creation mandate to fill all the earth with the fruitful blessing of new and culturally diverse life. All humanity now hovers together in one place to try to make a name for themselves. And they do so by building a tower that reaches the sky, perhaps attempting to reach God's level, once again overstepping their bounds as creatures. Although the context has changed from a garden with two inhabitants to a valley where all the people on earth are gathered together, humanity hasn't changed. Their actions signal a defiant refusal to fulfill the creational mandate of representing God's gracious presence throughout the whole of his cosmic temple as priests and ruling over it in a way that all of creation would flourish with well-ordered, diverse, and abundant life. This time, God forcefully divides and disperses their imperial-like project in order to restart the process of fulfilling his dream of bringing his whole creation to its potential through humanity. And it's out of this forced dispersion that God, right at the end of chapter 11, chooses one man and his barren wife in order to restart that dream. Their names were Abram and Sarai, a.k.a. Abraham and Sarah. So, beginning the rescue operation, Abraham and Sarah. Genesis 12, to the end of the Bible, can be read as the story of God's mission to rectify what has happened previously in the biblical story for the purpose of bringing about his goal for creation. God never gives up on his dream of accomplishing his mission through the agency of humanity. But since God's goal for creation has to do with flourishing with abundant life, it is somewhat surprising that the first step God takes to bring this about is to single out, to set apart, or to call a barren woman's husband. But that is what the life-giving God does when three short verses after we are told of Sarai's condition, we hear these words. The Lord said to Abram, leave your land, your family, and your father's household for the land that I will show you. I will make of you a great nation and will bless you. I will make your name respected and you will be a blessing. I will bless those who bless you. Those who curse you, I will curse. All the families of the earth will be blessed because of you. Now, God's calling of Abraham is clearly intended to generate blessing and life for him and his family. Christian readings of the Old Testament should not ignore this intrinsic aspect of God's election of Abraham's family namely Israel. That is, in sovereign love, God elects Abraham's family in the first place for their own benefit. But in addition, because of Abraham and his family, all the other families on earth, all those we were introduced to in chapter 10 of Genesis, will experience God's blessing and life. Abraham's family then is to become the primary channel through which God chooses to work to accomplish 
his life-giving mission to defeat the death-dealing chaotic forces of sin and injustice in order to bring humanity and the rest of creation to its goal. And you know the story. God promises to start this great nation through Abraham's 90-year-old wife, Sarah. In the reading of Genesis 18 that we heard a few minutes ago, we heard what will turn out to be a typical pattern with regard to God's people and their participation in God's mission in verses 18 and 19. We'll come back to that in a moment, but before focusing on that pattern, it's important to note that the context grounds these verses in a very concrete world. It's a world where the death-dealing chaotic forces of sin and injustice have the, the cities of Sodom and Gomorrah in their grip, so much so that their people's life together has become a channel of injustice and violence towards others in a similar way that injustice and violence filled the whole world before the flood. The language of cries of injustice you heard earlier describes the cry of those who are vulnerable and helpless in the face of such violence and injustice. Like the cry of immigrant Israelite slaves who helplessly watched the Egyptians throw their babies into the Nile River. Or the cry of helpless widows and orphans who are abused by the greedy and powerful. God prepares to deal with Sodom and Gomorrah then because of the injustices they were perpetuating on those who were helpless to protect themselves from their oppression and violence. To be clear, Sodom and Gomorrah are not destroyed because their men attempt to engage in same-sex relations per se. But there's no doubt that their attempt to gang rape those they take to be vulnerable visitors, essentially to show their dominance over them, illustrates the very kind of violent behavior and injustice which is all pervasive among them. This kind of behavior not only dehumanizes victims, it also dehumanizes the perpetrators who become more like unruly beasts than truly human icons who mediate God's image to others. It's a bit like the injustice of the pornography industry or the sex trade that dehumanizes those whose bodies are used in it, whether willingly or unwillingly, for the consumption of others. And at the same time, progressively dehumanizes those who consume the bodies of others. What's important for our present purposes is that God decides not to hide from Abraham his compassionate concern for those enduring Sodom-like injustice. Granted, his compassion for them will ultimately be expressed in the destruction of the perpetrators and the conditions that make the violence and injustice possible. But what's on display is God's compassionate character manifest in his passionate resolve to make right that which is contrary to flourishing life and well-being that he intends for all his creatures, victims and perpetrators alike. God's judgment against the persistent opposition to his life-giving purposes is a manifestation of his loving sovereignty over his good 
creation. His refusal to allow perpetrators to go on indefinitely treating their victims as less than the images of God they are, and thereby become more and more beastly and dehumanize themselves. This is the concrete context for the Lord's decision not to hide from Abraham what he is about to do so that Abraham can learn his way. In verse 18, it is as though God is reminding himself of his promise to Abraham. And in verse 19, he gives the theologic of how this promise is to work out in Abraham and his family's life. Note the logical connectors in the following sentence or sentences. Abraham will surely become a great and powerful nation, and all nations on earth will be blessed in him or through him. For, I say that because, I have chosen him so that he will direct his children and his household after him to keep the way of the Lord by doing righteousness and justice in society so that the Lord will bring about for Abraham what he has promised him. Note carefully, the first move in this whole sequence is God's. God makes a sovereign choice of Abraham before he's done anything of consequence. But this sovereign choice of Abraham has a purpose. It is so that he will teach his family to keep the way of the Lord, which is immediately defined in positive terms as doing righteousness and justice in society. The original language behind the English translation of doing righteousness can also mean something like doing saving justice. And that sounds a little repetitive, I know, when it's followed by uh, another word of another word that essentially seems similar of doing justice. Both these terms are often used together with little difference in their meaning and have to do with acting rightly or justly in particular relationships and concrete social situations. Neither term, righteousness or saving justice, or justice, refers to totally impartial, blind justice of the sort that we're encouraged to imagine characterizes the American justice system. Rather, Enacting social justice is a more apt description of what these terms imply when used together. Doing righteousness and justice is characteristic of the way the divine king acts in places like Psalms and Jeremiah. By actively opposing the forces of chaos and injustice and bringing deliverance from violence and oppression. It's a pattern of activity that is to be emulated even by the human king. The divine king's desire is to act in concrete situations to restore the conditions of justice. That is, the conditions that obtain when humans are right with God, with self, with others, and with the whole created world. In chapter 19, we find out that in this particular situation having to do with Sodom and Gomorrah, God does this by destroying the channels through which the forces of sin and injustice are inhibiting his sustaining of rightly ordered life or shalom. 
However, as will become apparent when we trace the contours of Abraham's conversation with the Lord, God's move to destroy such channels, as in the earlier flood story, is in response to the unchecked, rampant, and thoroughgoing human violence and injustice in this particular place. The whole episode of Abraham's attempt to involve God in a typical back-and-forth bartering contest in chapter 18 underscores this point. Abraham simply presupposes that God has already decided to destroy the cities and that the way of the Lord is always and only the way of retributive justice. Something like we're intended, we, something, like, uh, uh, the, something like that on which the American justice system itself is based. This retributive justice or giving people exactly what they deserve is what Abraham imagines, characterizes the way of the Lord. But before his conversation with the Lord, all God said is that he's going to go down to investigate the charges against Sodom and Gomorrah. Abraham begins by assuming that he might need to educate or at least remind God about what justice is when he asks, are you planning to get rid of the good people right along with the bad? And then goes on to say, you're the judge of all the earth, right? Don't you judge with justice? Which for Abraham essentially means, don't you give people exactly what they deserve? So he attempts to engage in the bartering contest. And he begins with what in bartering logic would be a low price and tries to persuade God not to destroy the city for the sake of 50. But what would typically happen is that the two would meet somewhere in the middle and or God would give up a higher price but God doesn't give a higher price he gives a lower price and God simply allows Abraham to go as low as he seems to have the nerve to go dropping the number down to only 10 to every bid that Abraham lodges there's only a divine yes and never a no God's refusal to engage in a bartering contest whose ground rules assume that the way of the Lord is that of quantifiable retributive justice, suggests that Abraham has misunderstood. He's not educating God. God's educating him on the nature of divine justice. Abraham here, the paradigmatic representative of God's people, is given an opportunity to make intercession for these cities as a prophetic mediator. The main point here is that as his initial move to rectify situations of injustice, God doesn't desire to destroy those involved in that injustice, but rather to extend his mercy as far as is possible if there remains any real possibility for repentance and change in the situation. In other words, God's way of doing justice is to lead with compassion and mercy and in this text, God's people are being taught that the way, that way, and invited to become prophetic intercessors in situations characterized by injustice. In this particular case, the Lord, through the visit of two men or angels in chapter 19, does go down and appears to find out that the situation can't be resolved with the offer of compassion and mercy. In such a case, 
the way of the Lord, the way that the judge of the earth does justice in this hopeless scenario is to destroy the conditions, including its human channels, that make such unjust violence possible, thereby restoring shalom for those who are its victims. But again, this is not God's original intent for the way he would deal with his creatures, either in the rest of the Old Testament or in the New Testament. It's time now to draw this lecture to a close and summarize what we've seen so far. When the Bible is framed rightly, its primary storyline is not about how God deals with an individual's guilt so they can go to heaven when they die. It's about God's mission to bring creation to its intended destiny through you and me. God decides to do that after the debacle in the garden through one human, one human pair who will become his primary channel and become, the, become uh, the, the parents of Israel. He teaches this group primarily with his actions and his character about his way in the world. His character is manifest in his compassionate concern for cries for people in distress who are experiencing injustice and in his actions to restore justice in the situation. To implement this way of the Lord in their own life together, including our life together, God's people would have to exhibit a compassionate concern for enacting conditions in their own community that God defines as right and just so that our own communal life doesn't degenerate into Sodom and Gomorrah-like injustice toward each other or those outside their community. God's people would also have to attune their ears to the cries of injustice around them and speak out against it doing what they can to restore God's justice or shalom in the situation. One word of caution about God's people doing what they can to restore God's justice is in order here, though. After God's acting in Jesus to absorb violence and injustice into himself and purge the world of it, God's people acting violently toward others in the name of restoring God's justice should, in principle at least, be unthinkable. In the New Testament, the holy people of God are never depicted as a channel through which God destroys others to bring about God's restoring mission. If Abraham and his family are going to be the set-apart people God will use to bring his blessing and shalom to the other peoples of the world and finally bring creation to its intended destiny, it will require their obedience to the way of the Lord. That is, it will require them to reflect God's character or pattern of activity that seeks to engender restorative justice in order to reinstate shalom in a chaotic and disordered world of injustice. It will require them, in a word, to be holy, something we will explore in more depth on Friday. Thank you very much for your attention. Thank you, my friend. Let's stand together, please. We'll have a closing prayer and benediction. Our loving God and Heavenly Father, we thank you for your creative vision to enable and to allow creation to flourish. We thank you for your presence today. We pray that what we do here would give glory and honor to your name. And now as we leave this place, may we live lives of justice and mercy participating in your creative, flourishing, life-giving presence. In Jesus' name we pray, amen. God bless you, folks. Thank you.